Now we're starting now. Is it live? It's live. Hey, welcome to my podcast. My name is Dr. Brendan McCarthy. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Protea Medical Center in Chandler, Arizona. Um, thanks for tuning in. Last podcast, we talked a lot about testosterone deficiency in men. We talked about how to treat it. We talked about the impact it's having on their biology, specifically uh, the blood sugar. We talked about insulin. We talked about overall metabolism. We talked about neurological issues. We talked about the pitfalls of going to certain kinds of clinics where they're not running lab work. We talked about how to care for it and how to do it safely. If you notice during that podcast, the two parts, at no point did I tell you why it was happening. We didn't discuss that at all. We're going to do that today. Today is going to be not, not really part three, but it's kind of an extension. And even in a lot of ways goes back to uh, my episode uh, two and three where we talked about women and their hormones. This plays a role in both of them. So I'm going to go more into depth as some of the causes why our endocrine system is compromised nowadays. As always with this, I'm talking about really important material, things that affect us at a deep level. And whenever you do something like that, Whenever you tune into something like this, it's important that the information you get is valid and accurate. And the best way to do that is to cite where I get my material. So that way you can look back and say, does that really say that? Why does he think that? Where did that come from? And from there, looking at that research, maybe you go look into other research to get your own opinion. It's so important. I encourage my patients always to, to research what we talk about. I give them the studies that I read. I explain to them why I think the way I think. And I feel like it's important for me and my podcast to do the same. An educated person is a powerful person. The more knowledge you have behind you, the better decisions you make. I use this analogy all the time with my patients. The word doctor comes from the Latin word docere. I think it's docere is the correct pronunciation. I've been saying it for a little over 20 years now as docere, so for me it's docere. And in Latin, that means to teach. So the word doctor comes from the word teacher. The role of the physician is to educate you. You tell us what's going on. We try and figure out what may be causing it. We come up with a hypothesis of what's probably going on with you. Then with that hypothesis, we test it. I think it might be this, so let me run these labs to verify that's what it is. Once I run the labs, I sit there with the labs. I say, am I correct with a hypothesis or not? And then I sit down with you and say, this is what the labs show us. This is what your symptoms are. This is what I think will work and what will happen. I'm sitting down and educating you what's going on biologically in your body with that lab work. And then if you want more research explaining why the lab work and your symptoms are attached to each other like the way they are, I give you that too. That's so important we do that as physicians. Because at the end of the day, at that appointment, you will make the decision whether you're going to follow through with the protocol I've advised you to take you're the one that chooses. And that decision needs to be an educated decision. And the education comes from lab work and a clear explanation from your physician on what's going on and what to expect. So education in medicine is everything. And that's why I believe citing things is important. When you see this little thing up here, please know that there's a citation that's gonna be in the description of the video and it'll have a timestamp specific. Especially with today's presentation, because today's presentation is heavy. And I keep saying that. I say that with like every podcast. This is a heavy one. Whoa, this is heavy. There's that word again, heavy. 
Why are you feeling so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? What? I'm going to do a light one. I'm going to laugh during one of these one of these states. I do laugh, but it's just, I'll do something fun at some point. I promise. So, uh, yeah, let's do something sad again. Um, why is it that sperm counts have gone down in men uh, by 50% over the past 40 years? 50, 5, 0%. Why is it that we're seeing a change in testosterone levels in men? Why is the fertility is changing in the world, all around the world? What's really happening? It's important. So that's where we get into what's happening, what's causing this. And the cause of this, spoiler, are endocrine disrupting compounds. Compounds that have been introduced to the environment that have a direct impact on our endocrine system, specifically a reproductive health in the case of today's presentation. They do other things too, but I'm gonna be really hammering away at the impact it has on reproduction and why it's so important to address, so important to care for, okay? So starting off, you know, there's been a reduction in fertility and that reduction in fertility sometimes gets confused with infertility, okay? There's been a reduction in fertility and fertility rates that is often confused with infertility. Or sometimes people think this reduction in fertility rate is important and not a sign of infertility. Or other times they think, oh my God, the fertility rates are going down. Infertility is, we're in Armageddon. Now it's the end of the world, okay? I wanna tease this apart really quick because this is an important part of the equation. So there is a pathological rise in infertility that's being masked by expected fertility rate declines, okay? Let me word that one more time for you. There is a pathological rise in infertility. A, 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 the people are not able to conceive, okay? Medical reasons. And that's being masked by an expected decline in fertility rates. A healthy decline, which I'll go over a little bit in a minute. Fertility rate declines have been underway for over 100 years now. The fertility rate has been dropping for over 100 years. Okay, this is not infertility. This is the rate that's been declining. The pathological rise in infertility has been observed over the past 50 years. Okay, so we have this reduction of fertility rates that is expected and okay. And it's good, it's not bad. But we also have an uptick in the past 50 years of infertility happening at the same time. They're gonna intersect each other soon, okay? Confounding this further in here is that current infertility trends are inconsistent with historical age and health-associated declines. That sounded crazy. Let me reword it again for you. Current infertility trends that are occurring are not associated directly with age or health. And health, when I say health, health in the sense of pre-existing conditions that will definitely affect fertility, which would be things like, you know, uh, diabetes, obesity, um, gynecological conditions we'll discuss a little bit here. This increase in infertility is independent of those normal causes of infertility, okay? It's just ticking up. There is a definite and measurable increase in pathological infertility, and it's more than what we were calculating for in the past. Let me first talk about 
what this decline in fertility rate is about, the one that's been going on for 100 years, what's been happening for 100 years now. We know that the current modern global average fertility rate is approximately 2.5 children per woman, okay, worldwide. We know that the agrarian, which is the pre-modern era, the fertility rate was about 4.5 to 7 children per woman, okay? It's gone down to 2.5. Again, is that pathological? Nope, not completely. There is pathology in there, sneaky. I will make this make sense, I promise you. Bear with me. God, these are, you know, these are such a uh, hard thing to talk about because um, you're supposed to grab people in the beginning of these podcasts and I want to grab you, but I'm, I need to lay a foundation at the same time. This is important. I promise, I promise. Bear with me. This is important, okay? Common reasons for this decline are good things. Good things. Women are more empowered. Women have entered the workforce. Children are surviving longer. And the health and wellness of children is more important now. We know that culturally, socially, we are changing as a people. And it's not a bad thing. The mortality rate of children was so high 100 years ago, 150 years ago, and as the mortality rate has gone down, our reproductive rate has gone down as well because less children are dying, so parents are not having as many. That's not a bad thing. If you were to have five pregnancies and only two survived, what if now you're having two pregnancies and they both survived? So the fertility rate there would seem neutral, but it's not. It's actually gone down because you didn't have those five children. That's what that rate really is. Make sense? Good. As women earn more money and as the family income goes up, fertility rates have gone down as well because more people are entering the workforce. So this is another reason why the fertility rate is now is at 2.5. Is that a bad thing? No, not really. So long as people are allowed to have children when they're ready and it's their choice. So from 1990 to 2017, the global rate of infertility increased by 15% of women and 8% in men. So while we're having this healthy decline in fertility rates, because we don't need to have eight children in order to have just one or two or three of them survive, and because women are now entering the workforce and because they have a say and they're able to you know, make a choice for when they want to start their families, and we've had advances in, in, in reproduction, uh, you know, contraception. At the same time, we're having this increase in unexplained infertility with people who want to conceive. People want to conceive. They're not conceiving nearly as much as they should. And that rate is going up. There's been a compelling increase in studies confirming a significant decrease in sperm counts, as I brought up in the last PowerPoint and today's. And it's not just one study. This is in slide number nine. There'll be several studies cited in there. You know, we know that men are down 50% in their sperm count over the past 40 years. And that's been documented in several studies. The thing about that decline that you're seeing in men's testosterone is independent of age and lifestyle. Smoking or, or you know, uh, diet or alcohol consumption, these things impact testosterone. Uh, 
or waking, you know? So these declines are occurring faster than we would imagine associated with lifestyle. And then as I mentioned in the last podcast, and I will say again to you now, the rate of congenital penile abnormalities in boys such as hypospadias, where the penis is not fully formed, or uh, micropenis, are on the rise. And these things are all androgen dependent, meaning when there's low testosterone in utero, exposed to these boys, not enough testosterone, they're not gonna fully form. And that's been rising significantly over the past 40 years as well. On the side of women, we know that from 1990 to 2011, there's been a 20% increase in unexplained infertility. And that is also associated with a relative increase in pregnancy loss of about 2% per year in women since 1990 as well. So since 1990 to now, there's been a 2% increase per year in uh, unexplained, you know, miscarriages. So these fertility rates are dropping and there's no one can argue it. No one can argue that it's happening. This has been proven on several arenas of studies. It's not just one journal publishing it. It's just everywhere. You know, why? Why is this happening? Well, let's think about what the common etiologies or common causes of infertility are for people. Let's do that. You know, female infertility, approximately 30, maybe 40% of the cases is going to be due to ovulatory dysfunctions, meaning you're not ovulating, so the egg somehow or another is not being released correctly. Something's happening there. And there you go. That's a common one. Um, 30 to 40% can be tubal or pelvic pathology, right? And then 30% is going to be idiopathic. We don't quite know what happened. All right, that's for women. For men, you know, conditions would be hypogonadism, which is low androgen status because testosterone is necessary for sperm production. So, so hypoandrogenism is a problem. Uh, androgen resistance, which is when the cells don't really respond to testosterone correctly due to, you know, receptor issues, okay? Uh, semen transport issues such as like genital tract obstructions or something going on with the nervous system not allowing it to fire correctly. And then uh, there's also going to be, you know, some, some unexplained causes as well with men. What about the unexplained defect in sperm quality is found in a lot of men? The precise cause of that defect cannot be determined at least 50% of men. So 50% of the men that present to clinic with infertility from their, you know, on their part, so 50% of men presenting to clinics with infertility issues, they have issues with motility and morphology, meaning the sperm's not swimming or it's shaped irregularly. There's just irregularities with their sperm. They don't know why it's happening to them. They don't know why. And so what about them? And what about the 30% of women you know, that are unexplained as well. What could be causing that? It's important to take this moment and recognize that the rise in pathological infertility coincides with the rise in use of plastics and, and chemical compounds that are known as endocrine disrupting compounds. Many of these chemicals are known to have significant impact on our endocrine system. Many of them are known to impact your fertility and your ability to generate healthy sperm, or your ability to ovulate, or your ability to conceive and carry a pregnancy to term. 
Endocrine disrupting compounds are defined as an exogenous substance or mixture that alters the function of the endocrine system and consequently causes adverse health effects in an intact organism or its progeny or subpopulations. That's the standard definition. Where would you find endocrine disrupting compounds? Everywhere around your house, <laughs> mostly around your food, mostly around your food. You know, um, lead, you know, stuff like that, cadmium, that stuff's going to be, you know, in toys, it's going to be on paint, that sort of things, you, you know, DDT and, 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 you know, uh, round up those chemicals, you can find that in your pesticides, you know, um, BPAs, phthalates and phenols, that's in your plastics, that's in, uh, you know, say you get a paper cup at your coffee shop, that's not paper, I mean, it's paper, but the inside of it is plastic, you pour your coffee in there, you're releasing all that plastic into your coffee and then you're drinking it. That's how you're getting it. That's the big way of doing it. Um, anytime you wrap stuff up in saran wrap, anything you put things in a Ziploc bag that's hot, anytime you microwave with a plastic thing, anything you drink something out of styrofoam, you are ingesting endocrine disrupting compounds. Specifically in those cases, you'll be getting uh, BPAs in there, uh, bisphenol A, and uh, you'll be getting phthalates or, or, or the like, variations of the phthalates. Um, remember when you were a kid and you go play soccer? I mean, I remember playing soccer as a kid and I remember having the water bottle that would get hot on the side of the field, but I was so hot running around. I would drink out of it anyway. You know, you're a kid, you drink out anyway. And when I drink out of it, the water was kind of lukewarm. It tasted like garbage. It tastes like plastic because it was full of plastic. And then, and then, and then, you know, you get it, you put ice in it and, and it is in the fall and the, towards the winter time, you're still playing, you know? It, it, tasted, it didn't taste nearly as bad back then, did it? You know, when it was colder because it was cold, so it wasn't leaching as much plastic into you, but you still were getting it in you. It's, that's how we're getting it in our bodies. You know, all these wrappers that we use, all these, you know, plastic bottles and, 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 and you know, the way we store our food, that's the way we're getting it. Didn't you say you eat like a credit card? Every day. Oh, no, every week. One week you get an amount of a credit card. It gets worse. This is, this is not my favorite talk. I got to do it. We got to do it. Yeah. yeah. They need, you need us. Here we go. So it's like, you see, so you get this, so you get this BPAs, you know, and thales, but BPAs, talk about them more, you know, BPAs, they're stable, you know, and that, this, this, this is how, and you're like, hey, Brennan, Brennan, how did you get plastics in our food how come it's getting there don't they test it you know come on brennan they're not gonna do that to us <laughs> yeah they are well okay look at it from their perspective how do they squeak this in under and pass the regulators out there because that's what they did and regulators are you know i'm not gonna judge anyone right now Accidental ingestion is the main route of exposure for BPA, okay? And i'm gonna read this for you bpa loses its cohesiveness at 70 degrees celsius Okay, that's 150 degrees Fahrenheit. So you pour your coffee in that cup that's lined with plastic and BPA, that at 158, you're getting in your body, okay? If you're microwaving your stuff inside of a Tupperware, yeah, you're getting it in your body. You just are, you just are, okay? So you're getting BPAs in your body no matter what with that one. Um, say the BPA, you know, you're, you're taking it, you lose it. So the, 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 the plastic loses cohesiveness over time with mechanical injury to it. So you take that, again, your Tupperware, and you bring it home, you use it, and, you know, say you don't microwave it, so you just put the food in it, whatever you take, and then you, you scrub it with your, your sponge and you clean it. Every time you scrub it like that, 
you break down the cohesiveness of the container. That lack of cohesiveness in the container, now you're going to have more microparticles that are going to work its way into the food. So remember, you see your Tupperware that looks all brand new, super fancy and clean and nice, right? And after a few years, it's all frosty and you can't see through it anymore because it's all, you know, you know, um, frosted, you know, that, that white look to it. It's from micro scratches. Those micro scratches, all the micro scratches, the plastic that was there is now in you, you know? And then, God forbid, and not to talk about BPAs here, move over to another compound. When you, when you take those nonstick pans and you scrub them a little bit, and over the years you see more scratches on it, and after a while you see those, those nonstick pans have all that garbage in the inside of it, no longer looks brand new. Where did all that nonstick coating go? Inside of you. It's in your body. What is it doing in your body? Is it benign? No, it's not benign. It's not benign. It's not benign. It's causing permanent damage to your ability to conceive. Permanent. That's what that's doing. Fact. No arguing. Well, Brendan, what's a safe amount? <laughs> there is no safe amount. Your body is so resourceful in, in, in this process of fertility that it can withstand a lot of insult and still be fertile. This is why at a, count, a sperm count of 50 million, men are still able to, to procreate, okay? Men can still procreate at a 50 million sperm count because that's how redundant and awesome nature is. And we are gifted with this gift. It's a matter of time now before we start seeing what the impact has been because we've pushed it that far over the past 50 years. I want you to know that epidemiological studies show that 90% of us in America have BPAs in our urine. Not a small number. 90% of us. And the other 10%, if you test them a few more times, you'd find them slipping in there sooner or later. You know, come on. How can you not? This <laughs> plastic's everywhere, man. Plastics are everywhere. Um, how does this happen? And why? That's a horrible thing to tell you. I'm aware of this. And you're like, Brendan, Brendan, why am I listening to this podcast? Because now you're just telling me that the world's over and there's no solutions. I wouldn't do this without giving you a solution, I promise you. All right? I'm, I'm going to give you definite solutions here that you don't need to see a doctor for either. You should see a doctor if you're not fertile. You should be worked up. Don't just do this. Do that too. Remember, this is important. But I'm going to talk about the endocrine disrupting compounds that affect fertility and talk about the hope that we have with its treatment. I'm not going to leave you without hope. Promise. In order to have hope, in order to have hope, we have to understand the pathology. What's happening? How are BP? I'm going to be specific on this talk about to BPAs and phthalates because that's I, they, we got the best research on them and they are the most responsible for fertility right now that we know about. And if that changes in the future, I'll do another podcast. I promise. Trust me. So BPAs, bisphenol A, that, as I mentioned a minute ago, inside all these wrappers around your food and all these cans, it's, you know, the lining of your cans, it's inside your, your Tupperware, it's, it's in your paper cups you get from your favorite coffee shop. You know, BPAs preferentially target Leydig cells and Sertoli cells in men. Those are the ones that generate sperm. Okay? And then when they're there, it triggers apoptosis, DNA and mitochondrial damage, it disrupts the tight junctions between the cells, keep them together and keeping them cohesive. Um, BPAs are also are xenoestrogens, so they act like an estrogen inside the body, a synthetic estrogen. So it's gonna affect the virility, 
of your men. It's going to disrupt endocrine functions uh, with hormone receptor modulation, meaning it's going to bind to the receptor and sort of pretend like it's estrogen, but it's going to block the receptor from any other action, and it sends the wrong signals. Okay? So this is not a true hormone. This is important here, and this is a little nerdy, but my nerd friends and my scientist friends or my doctor friends will know this. Be like, hey, this guy read his research here. BPA exposure disrupts testicular CERT1 pathways. Okay? Like, CERT1, what is that? CERT1. It's CERT1 is important because CERT1 plays a role with the oxidative damage done to your cells. It's protective. Without it, you're going to have more oxidative stress on the tissue. That's where the problem gets really wicked in there because you're causing oxidative damage in the tissue. Okay? BPA is going to increase oxidative stress in the testicular tissue. That's a big issue with this. This is where we're going to get better traction on treatment. I want you to remember that. So CERT1 is important. It also plays a role damaging the blood testes barrier. So that the blood, blood there's a blood-brain barrier here, but there's a blood testes barrier here. It damages that. So there's improper transfer of nutrients and, and, and waste. You're also going to see an uh, increase in reactive oxygen species because of the CERT1 pathway. And there's also going to be DNA damage due to that CERT1 pathway being messed with. So you're going to have more oxidative stress, more reactive oxygen species, and you're going to have damage to the DNA in there because of the oxidative stress from BPA. And as I mentioned a minute ago, it's also xenoestrogen. Okay? So that's how it's affecting fertility in men. BPA inhibits testosterone production. It's going to be affecting Sertoli number and function, and that's going to also reduce sperm. Exposure to BPA decreases the diameter of the seminiferous tubules, okay? And that's the tube with which sperm is going to travel on its way out for fertility. Okay, it's going to reduce the diameter. So it's going to inhibit the, 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 the transfer of testosterone during, during intercourse. Um, it's so fucking depressing, dude. It's so depressing. Give me a minute. In animal studies, male offspring uh, uh, of maternal rats exposed to BPA, men who were born, male rats born to mothers who were exposed to BPA were observed to have reduced sperm counts. And it wasn't just their generation, but subsequent generations after that also had reduced sperm counts, showing there's a chance that this can pass on one generation to the next. This is, could be a long-lasting issue. But that's only an animal study. We need more human studies to see. I'm not advocating for women to be exposed to BPA. But I am looking at we should find populations of people that have been exposed to BPA already and then start monitoring what happens with their children downstream and keep an eye on it because it's important for us to study this. Again, we don't want to expose people to this. But if you've been exposed, I think that's a good population to start researching and watching and following and seeing what we can do to help them. Um, BPA exposed females in, again, animal studies were observed to have significant uh, increase in post-implantation loss, meaning that once the, the fetus is conceived of and starts to implant on the, the, in the womb, it doesn't. It doesn't implant correctly. It's lost. And then we also see that there's a decreased litter size in all generations after that, for the, after that BPA exposure. We know really precisely how BPA affects male reproduction. Okay, we do. We know that. We know it more clearly. We know BPA, bisphenol A, 
affects female reproduction. We just don't understand how it does it. The mechanism is not clear. It is suspected that BPA may alter overall female reproductive capacity by affecting morphology, function of the oviduct, you know, the uterus. It may be more structural in those cases. There is a lot of thought that there may also be oxidative damage done similar to CERT1 with male uh, uh, exposure. That is a possibility. But again, not enough research is being done with women. It's important to know in human studies, women who have infertility have statistically higher levels of BPA on testing. In the journal Fertility Sterility, they published, and this is a quote I'm going to use here, infertile women have higher measurable BPA levels uh, than fertile women, and these higher BPA levels are correlated with fertility problems in women undergoing IVF treatment. That was a journal Fertility Sterility, acknowledging the impact BPA has on fertility and the fact that these women are going to be needing IVF, which is a pretty invasive procedure to finally conceive. BPA interrupts fertility. BPA plays a role in inhibiting the ability for one, the sperm to even reach the egg. Uh, it plays a role with the egg being able to become fertilized and implant. It plays a role in the future generation's ability to conceive, but also plays a role in just development, sexual development in children. We know that uh, BPA urine concentrations are significantly higher in cases of premature therolarch premature therolarc, which is breast development. So children who are showing, you know, premature maturation, more often than not, high BPA. So everyone's wondering why children are going through puberty so early. Some people are saying it's great because, you know, we're awesome, we're healthier, we have better nutrition. I want that to be true. What if it's this, though? We should be aware of it. We should be thinking about it. Those kids are going to school with their lunch boxes and how much plastic is in their meal that morning. Another endocrine disrupting compound that's important to think about is going to be phthalates. Phthalates are also added to plastics as well. It's another plasticizer, but it's also used as a, a preserving agent. You'll see in a lot of different weird things like that. Um, men, women, and children exposed to high levels of phthalates have reduced levels of testosterone. Fact. Fact. Penile exposure to phthalates is associated with decreased anogenital distance and lowered penile size in, in male offspring, humans, humans. So there you have your micropenis with phthalates. So, so, ah! I wore my most uncomfortable shirt. So how is this currently treated? How is this? That was a blast. Well, like to press for half of this PowerPoint. Yeah. Uh, this presentation, I'm like, dun, 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 dun. I can do this. Okay, I can do this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone needs this. Someone needs this. Someone needs this. I'm going to end it strong. This is ending it strong. So, phthalates, BPAs, ubiquitous throughout the environment, everywhere, everywhere. You can't avoid it. So how is it treated? We know it's a problem. How is it currently being treated? Is it being treated? <laughs> What's going on? You know, again, poorly. I wouldn't do pie. If it was being treated awesome, I wouldn't be doing the podcast, would I? I wouldn't be sitting here getting depressed <laughs> over the subject, chatting with you, um, if it was treated awesome. <laughs> but uh, there is a better way of treating it. I'll get there. I promise. That's part two of today's presentation. Surprise, surprise. It could be two-parter again.
No, two-parter. Because this data is so deep and rich, there's enough for two. So let me finish this up. Let me know. Let me let you know this. Um, how is it currently treated? How are we treating this? How are we approaching it? As I mentioned, poorly. Poorly. What are we doing? Avoidance. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's the problem with avoidance is that only the people who believe it's a problem will follow through with that avoidance. Remember, like, hippies back in, like, the 1990s or the 80s or 70s? Hippies have been around for a long time. You know, it's, hippies have been around a long time. I have a lot of friends that are hippies. I'm not against hippies. The hippies are great. Um, but the people who believe this is a problem are the ones who are avoiding it, Okay. That's not a good approach to something that's affecting the world at this magnitude. That only the people who believe in it will be saved from it. That's not enough. Um, poverty, education, cultural acceptance. These are the greatest obstacles to treating EDCs, endocrine disrupting compounds. Poverty because, you know, does everyone have the money to put their water in glass bottles? Does everyone have the money to eat their food on ceramic or on, you know, a surface that doesn't have, no, no. Poverty plays a role in this stuff. Are there options? Yes, there are. There are plastic cups that are not made of plastic, they're made of plant starches, and it's only a few dollars more. There are paper cups that are lined with plant starch that's just a few pennies more, okay? These are available, but again, it still adds up for people who don't have the money for it. It still adds up. So people who are poor, these are the people who are suffering with this. So they're not being helped. Um, cultural acceptance. There's the people who think that this is hogwash and, you know, malarkey. <laughs> I'm Irish, so that's what Irish people say. But it's just, you know, there's people who don't believe this is real. And, and you know, there are people out there who think the world is flat. And, you know, this is the internet. And I'm on the internet. So this is what's out there. And blah. Education is everything. And it needs to transcend political, it needs to transcend social, it needs to transcend all of these things and go to pure science. Water is wet, sky is blue, endocrine-disrupting compounds are harming you. I didn't believe I just made that up. I want to end this on a high note for you guys. I want to end on a high note. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the approach for how we treat endocrine... I just can't believe I made that rhyme up. Uh, um, generally, generally how we're treating this really is, is going to be avoidance. And, you know, people who have fertility issues from it, we're basically trying to get them pregnant using, you know, as many extreme methods that we can. You know, we're doing in vitro fertilization, ICSI, we're doing intrauterine inseminations. We're doing everything we can to push the pathway. It's only going to work for a little bit longer before it starts getting hairier. It really is. So my next episode today... I'm going to stop and I'm going to say my next episode, we're going to talk about concrete ways to reverse the damage that's been done, how to measure it, how to validate and where some interesting research is going right now in the field. I want you to know there is hope. The research is good and I have clinically seen positive effects from these protocols. Okay. And I didn't invent, I didn't invent them. I did not invent any of these protocols. I am not that creative. Not at all. But I am the guy that reads the research. I'm the guy that reads the book. I'm the guy that sits in the room with the patient saying, how can I make this better? You deserve that kind of doctor in your life. So 
Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope there was benefit. I hope it was not too depressing. I hope you go do something fun after this. I'm sorry this is so intense. If you like what I posted, not even that, man. If this was beneficial to you in some way, please like, please share, please subscribe. I'm doing this because I want to be of benefit to you. So the more that you like, share, and subscribe, the more I know this material is important to you. So thank you very much for tuning in, and I will see you soon.